welcome to this week's episode of CX Cast. This is Sam Stern, joined in studio by my co-host Jenny Wise. Hi, Jenny. Hi, everyone. And we have our colleague, principal analyst Rick Parrish, on the line. Hi, Rick. Hello, hello. Good to be here again. And today we invited you to join us because you and a cast of your colleagues wrote this report <laughs> that went live just over a month ago called "Avoid These 14 Customer Experience Misconceptions." I've looked through this; they're all really interesting, and I wish we could talk about all of them. But because there are so many, Rick, are there a few that you keep running into again and again? Uh, yes, there are actually three in here that I have a special love for. The first one is the misconception that a CX team doesn't need other stakeholders' help to assess its customer experience management maturity. I hear this a lot from clients. Of course, as, as you know, I think I've talked about it on, on the podcast probably a couple of times that I wrote the report about our CX management maturity model. And so I have a lot of conversations with clients about assessing their CX management maturity. And oftentimes they want to just get a small group of people together to do it because they say, well, we're the ones who really know the real answers, right? We, we know the facts. We know what the company's really doing, what it's really not doing. And so they're worried that if they open it up to more stakeholders, they won't know the quote unquote real answers. Also, they're worried that if they get answers from different parts of the organization, that people answering yes or no to different questions is going to sort of muddy the picture. And then some folks have even said that they're worried that if they have lots of employees take the self-assessment and, and, and assess the organization's CX management maturity, that they're actually going to get excited thinking that the organization is going to do something about those gaps. And then they'll get disappointed when nothing happens. In reality, you have to cast a really wide net because identifying trends in people's answers, people at different levels of seniority, in different business units, in different roles, that's where a lot of the magic really happens in understanding your level of CX management maturity. You know, some aspects of CX management, there is no right or wrong answer. It's just about perspective. Sometimes there is a right answer, but you learn a lot if people give the wrong one. Does the organization send out actionable insights from CX measurement to all employees? If the CX program does, in fact, send that data out, but everybody says, no, we don't, well, yeah. guess what? Right? You've, you've discovered something. Perception right? is reality, as yeah. we all exactly. can say in customer experience. Right. Right? Yeah, that's so anyway, what I was thinking. That's... If you ask CX, they may say, well, of course we're doing all these things and we're reporting metrics, but if it's landing on deaf ears or no one exactly. else knows that it's happening, then there's right. a problem right. that you found. Exactly. So that's my first favorite. Now, the, the second one relates to the research competency, and this one was contributed by Kelly Price. The misconception is we understand our customers because we user test our products and services. I love this one because as she explains it, basically, you know, what happens if you, if you do user testing but don't understand your customers, what you're going to do is you're going to end up with something that works really well that nobody wants. And, and I, I really like that example because once you start thinking about it, you see it all the time. And so Kelly recommends that CX teams perform what she calls an assumption dump before every project in which they identify what they think they know about customers and whether or not there's any actual evidence for those beliefs. And that's going to help the team identify where the research process should begin. Do you really need to go back to foundational customer research and understand if there's a real need, if there's a real pain point, what's really going on? Or do you have a good handle on that? And I mean really have a good handle on it. And now you can just go straight to the user test. I see that one a lot. And my third favorite one was contributed by one of our finest analysts, Sam Stern. Uh, I'm not and with that person. <laughs> you should get to know him. He's okay in small doses. This misconception is we should compensate employees on net promoter score or another high-level metric. We hear this 
all the time. Yes. I mean, oh. I hear it all the time. And if I hear it all the time, I know you're hearing it constantly. Yeah, you're right. We hear this one so yeah. often. We'll almost hear it in a sense where they come to us sort of like boasting about how they got approval to yes. do this. And I'm just like, oh, no. All right. Where do we start? And the other thing I often hear is I'll have a conversation where I am trying to talk them out of doing this. And I will give them all the evidence, which, you know, we know we don't change people's beliefs by convincing them with evidence. So that's that's been proven over and over again. But anyway, I try and I give them all the evidence and I lay all out the case and they say, yeah, I understand. So do you think we should start with just executives or should we roll it out to all employees at once? And it's like, OK, it didn't land. And, and so this one is a stubborn misconception, I would say. Yeah. And I really like the way that you address what they actually should do instead, which is figuring out which behaviors drive OCX metrics and then measuring people on those behaviors. Because one of the things that I, I kind of think about with this one is if you're compensating someone based on the outcome, they can kind of game the system a bit, right? This, you know, this is when you get like the cable installation tech in your living room begging you for a 10 mm -hmm. on the survey or he's going to lose his job. But if you goal people on the behaviors, it's a lot harder to play that sort of game. So that's, that's something I think about with this one too. So anyway, that's why this one this one's one of my three favorites. So you're saying yeah. let's focus on the cause and making sure that people are doing the right activities because the effect either can be gamed or is just really hard to measure. Right. I'm curious yes. as to what else is yeah. wrong about well, doing this. Well, let me, I, I'll, I'll push back on a piece of that. It's mm -hmm. actually easier to measure, which is why it's seductive. Mm -hmm. It's just a survey score from the customer. It's harder to control in a way that is not outside of what you would like them to do. It's easy to control if you coach the customer on what to give, right. if you manipulate which customers you send the survey to, if you yeah. dispute the scores after the fact, all of which are things we've all seen evidence of. It is hard to control if you just focus on doing your job to the best of your ability. And that's what's frustrating about it to employees and why they often resort to gaming the system. They could either game or they could throw their hands up and say, I don't know what to do because they often unfairly get blamed for a problem caused downstream or upstream right. from them. Mm -hmm. That isn't their fault. But the customer says, well, this is my one chance to tell you how I feel. So <laughs> I'm going to do that. And that's a perfectly valid response from the customer, even though we ask narrowly about this transaction. So Rick, you shared with us your three favorites for their... Um, being your, you know, maybe your least favorite of talking about anymore. Jenny, did, were any that stand out to you as, as a reader of the report? I, of course, am drawn to the design and the research ones, um, just based on what I tend to think about. The one that you mentioned, Rick, already is one that I come across all the time. In fact, just the other day, I'm talking to a client who were doing some work on human-centered design processes, right, to make sure that you aren't just mm -hmm. testing something that already exists, that you've already decided is a good idea, and moving around sort of buttons, right, but mm -hmm. actually understanding, did they want this, and is this their goal? I also like the ones on personas. Because personas do seem to confuse a lot of professionals, quite honestly, mm -hmm. right? They say, how specific do we get in a persona? What behaviors do we look at in a persona? If we have data around a segment, do we use that to create a persona? And so I think this is really helpful because this one frames, right? What it is, is the misconception. Mm -hmm. We can create good personas without knowing what we'll use them for. Right. You have to know what you're using them for so that you identify what are the right attributes and behaviors that matter so that we can use this persona to actually impact an experience right, or a feature set or a product mm -hmm. or a service. So that's another one that would be really helpful to share with yeah. people. Yeah. I really like that one. One of the things I really like about this one is that we included in their anonymous quote from a client who said, we now think about the persona's face 
but we don't think about what actually helps you understand what people are doing so that communicates they're, they're spending more time just thinking about extra stuff related to persona. You know, oh, should it be this picture? Should it be that right. picture? I think I've ranted about this before. It doesn't matter <laughs> if you're Julie and you have a cat and you don't like dogs, right? If you're talking to a media company, it matters if you like to browse research or do a deep dive into research, right? right? If it's a publication, those are the actual behaviors that matter. Rick, is there an organization scheme to think about here? Sort of short-term, long-term, or any sort of emphasis like that? Um, you could also divide these up into sort of big picture and and then more tactical. Some of the big picture ones are things like the misconception that an organization should aim to master all six CX management competence because that shouldn't necessarily be the goal. You need to figure out how that works with your with your strategy, and that's obviously a, a you know a really big strategic issue. You know, on the other hand, some are very very uh, tactical, like don't substitute employees for customers when you're user testing design. Yeah, I like that. I mean, I think along those lines. Some of those bigger picture things are things obviously you have to work with your colleagues on and solve at an organizational level. And the the tactical ones often could stop doing tomorrow within your CX team, at least. Right. So, Rick, we've got 14 at the risk of uh, going crazy here. Would you like to invite listeners to submit their favorites that we didn't cover in those 14? I'd love to hear from folks. Email us and tell us you know, what other big misconceptions uh, you see around. And uh, maybe we'll gather those up and maybe we can address them here. Maybe we'll write up another report. Always good to hear about uh, the you know, new and evolving misconceptions. Yeah, part two, perhaps. Rick, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure to have you on. Listeners, we will post a link to the 14 customer experience misconceptions that you should avoid in the show notes for the podcast. And we'd also love to get your feedback, your ideas, your frustrations about other misconceptions that you hear. We'll talk to you all next week on CXCast. Bye for now. Listeners, if you have feedback or questions about this week's episode, please email us at cxcast, one word, at forrester.com. And remember, your customer's perceptions is your customer experience reality.